The following podcast is a proud member of the Blue Collar Roots Network. Find all the shows by visiting bluecollarroots.com. And now, the man who takes the BS out of BS, Bill Spohn. Welcome back to another episode of the Building HVAC Science Podcast. This episode, recorded with Michael Kane in September of 2021, is a really interesting one. I'm really so happy to bring Michael's voice, his thoughts, and his ideas to the Building HVAC Science Podcast. You're going to hear about his concepts on the art and process of product development, which is really fascinating, and things that have evolved in his company through two generations of ownership of his family business. Now, Michael is a man of patience and empathy, and it comes through in his voice, and he greatly respects the dignity, value, and skill of those in the trades. And he really hopes to create the best products for people and trades to better do their jobs. Take a look at the links in the show notes to reach UEI, to reach Michael. Take a look at his products. Take a look at truetechtools.com also. This episode was recorded in September 2021. Let's listen in to the great conversation I had with Michael Kane. Good afternoon, Michael. Good afternoon. Nice to be here, Bill. Same here. Michael, I think a lot of listeners are familiar with UEI products, but maybe not so much familiar with the whole company. And I think you have a very rich history that you can talk about. Why don't you give us a little overview of UEI, please? UEI was founded in, I think, 1967. I think the person who founded it started it basically from nothing. And it was very much the story of my family. My father had arrived in the UK just before the Second World War. He was born in Austria, so he was Jewish. And there was an organization trying to get the Jewish boys out of Austria. And he was very fortunate that he got a permit that enabled him to do that. So by the time he arrived in the UK, he was basically a penniless orphan with nothing. and providentially, he was taken under the wing of a very kind lady. And then there was the Second World War. And then after the war, he actually came to New York and was selling cars. And the selling cars didn't work out. But what did work out is he absolutely fell in love with America. And that love from the 1950s stayed with him for the rest of his life. And he went back to England and started a business again from nothing, really. I think my grandmother's kitchen table was the office. And somewhere between those two things, he met and married my mum. I think he'd met her during the war. And he had a friend who was another refugee, also a Jewish refugee, this time from Germany. And his friend in, I think it was 1963, had invented a digital electronic thermometer, which was a big deal back then. Of course, it looks terribly ancient now, terribly basic. But, Pretty passe. But... <laughs> yeah, that's right. And, and my father had his own business and helped his friend get his business started. And that became Kane-May, the two names. But Mr. May died quite young. And my father left the other business that he'd started. So he took on that business. And for years, we tried to sell our products in America without success. And eventually, we were introduced to what was UEI. And they started selling our products. And one thing led to another. And we ended up owning the company. And that was about the time I got married. And just after that, I said to my new wife, how would you like to go to America for 18 months? And she said, oh, 18 months sounds pretty good. And that was 
27 years ago. So, so much for that. You didn't say how many times 18 months, though, did you? <laughs> That's right. So we've been here 27 years and we've been, came on a, a visa and then a green card. And then I think it's 14 years now we've been citizens and life moves on. So UEI was a distribution company. Who else today would someone to picture in their mind? So the person who founded the company, as far as I know, he had a connection that I think dated back to the Korean War in Korea. And it was trying to get established as a manufacturer. And he was basically buying products from this company. And I don't know all the details of how he did it, but he was establishing this company built around, as he called it, quality, value, and service. And obviously, he was successful at it and worked away at it for about 25 years. A lot of people try to start things. Not many make it 25 years. So yeah, it was really a sort of like an importer, distributor, after-sales service of these products. With the brand UEI on all the products? The company was called Universal Enterprises. And so it sort of, I think, alternated between Universal Enterprises, UEI, and we just thought it'd be simpler to call it UEI after we got involved. And when did you get involved? I think we first got involved in 1992. I came out in 1994, so we're fully involved in 1995. Yeah, so quite some time now. We were going to talk today a little bit about the mystery of product development, that sometimes that's opening those doors that lead behind to the product development. And you've done a great job giving me a preview of this. And I think I'd like to walk our listeners through that because it's really interesting. Like I said, I've experienced part of this in my career, but you're coming out and you're sharing this now, which is really great. And I really applaud that effort. So tell us about this creative process and how things go. I've just always found it fascinating just that there is this process. And you know, I do think there's a mystery about it. And I think there's a commonality about it. I think the world was created. I don't think it just happened. And I think we live in a world that is staggeringly beautiful and wonderful and vast. And the old phrase is ex nihilo, that is created out of nothing. And I think so much of what is creativity today is just emulating that process. And there seems to be just a parallel, no matter what you do. I mean, years ago, as a school, I used to do drama, and it was always the same. You get a group of people, and they're sitting in a room, and all you've got is a script. And then you develop a character, and then you get the costumes, and then you get the lights, and then you get the set, and then you have a dress rehearsal, which is always a disaster. But then you get to the day, And the audience comes in and the curtain goes up and now there's something and that something didn't exist before and it's happening and it's real and it's visible and the audience may not like it. That's not the point. The point is that you went from nothing or essentially just a script into this living dynamic thing. I watched a band once recording songs on a video. It's exactly the same thing. It just going over. And then again, you don't know if your song's going to sell one copy or a million copies. You can't know that in advance. But you got this sense of here's this song that just didn't exist before. So in our world, we make test and measurement products. Some of them are derivative of things. Maybe you add a button to make it work better. But every so often, it's just an idea. What about if we did this? And then you go through all this agony of 
well, how do we do this? And how do we do it? And then you get into all the trade-offs and what's technically possible. And well, if it's technically possible, is it possible to actually make it? And if you can make it, can you make it at a cost that somebody's willing to pay for it? You just have to go through this process. But eventually you get the tooling done and you put the board together and you test it. And then in your hand, you've got this thing and it didn't exist before. And all it was at the beginning of the process was just an idea. What about if? And then it becomes a real thing. And then you put your real thing into the marketplace. And you can't guarantee how that's going to be received. You can't know, but you have faith. Yeah. Obviously, you're doing it. You're trying to apply the process to something that hopefully somebody will find useful or attractive or helpful. You've got to do that because at the end of the day, we're in business and it's not art for art's sake, as it were. Yeah. You have to exist, continue to exist, to come back and do it again another day. Exactly. But the point is you go through this process. You started with really the classic idea scratched on the back of a napkin. You're starting with nothing. And then there's something tangible, real. I don't know. I just always love that process. I just love that transition. It doesn't have to be. I mean, it can be the same with an idea. I mean, we've got an advertising thing we're doing right now. Well, it went through countless iterations. Well, what about if we do this? But the final thing is very different from the original thing was. And you just go through this process. So I don't know. I've just always found that fascinating and fun. I've heard just in the study of business, I know that there are many strict processes. One of them that comes to mind is something that I think goes back to General Electric from decades ago called the stage gate process. That's very strict. You have to meet certain parameters before you can move on to the next phase. Otherwise, you get rejected and you have to go back. That's a way of perhaps accounting or financial control and measured use of the organization's resources. How do you feel your process goes, the process you've described? Is it written? Is it embedded? Is it natural? Is it flexible? How does it look? We've got two design teams built, one in the UK and one, we've got a factory in South Korea. And both the teams are very experienced. They've got many years, well, not everybody on the team, but overall, the team's got many years of experience under its belt. So partly, there's a process that's written down. UK does that very, very well. And partly, it's you sort of learned how to do this. So it's embedded in the culture of the company. And you just know that, okay, we're going to go down this path because we've gone down this path multiple times. So again, it's a bit of a combination of art and science, isn't it? I mean, you've got to have the method. You've got to have go through it in certain steps. And whether you call them uh, stage gates or whether you call them something else. I mean, you have to. You're not doing it for its own sake. You are operating in the context of a business with limited resources, whether it's time or money or people or whatever. But there's also the art that sometimes resolving a problem just doesn't fit into an eight-hour workday. Sometimes you can't just resolve a problem saying, well, I've got three hours to solve this problem. And oh, time's up. <laughs> yeah, it just doesn't work like that. And so that's a bit of both, isn't it, Bill? And obviously, in one sense, we're a small company, so maybe we've got more flexibility on the art side. And obviously, if you're a very large business, maybe you have to have just more controls just to make the organization run. But yeah, it's a bit of both. Has the 
process changed in the last few years, the last 10 or 15 years? It looks like the designs have changed from UEI, from my perspective. The external look of the product and even the function of it have changed. It seems like more rapidly or more ideas are springing out. Again, I think we're very, very fortunate that we've got very skilled design teams in both these locations and they bring a lot of experience to it. Again, I don't think the underlying process changes that much. You're still starting with an idea. You're still saying, it's well, what about if, what if we did this? What if we did that? I just think that underlying process doesn't really change very much. And if I did this for another 50 years, I don't think that underlying thing would be very, very different. But obviously, I think as your team goes up the learning curve and as you get more experience, I think it allows you to just do the process better. And you've got more resources to draw on, more experience to draw on, and therefore you've got more ability to think about things. I think the other thing, Bill, is what's also very exciting about our world is the way technology changes. I mean, if you open up a clamp meter made 10 years ago, you're going to see a very crowded PCB. If you open up one of ours today, well, there's basically a chip and a few other bits of it. But what's driving that is you've just got this amazing jump in technology and the power of the chips that allows you to do things that were almost unimaginable not so very long ago. And whether it's just in what the product does or the size that it does. When I first joined the business, we were doing combustion analyzers back then, and we were packing these analyzers in, it was literally like a stainless steel suitcase. I don't know if you remember those days, Phil. But I remember that, yeah. The 900, I think. Yeah, you had to have a, literally a suitcase to put the thing in. And, and now, of course, it fits in your hand. And that's partly the skill of our engineers, but it's also that the technology that they're working with just lets them do things that they couldn't do back then, or we couldn't do back then. So when you talk about the jump in technology and things being reduced to a chip, that chip obviously isn't made by UEI, it's an available chip. How does that factor into competition now that some people have the essence, people can buy the essence? It's just not that easy. No. (laughs) (laughs) To complete the product. I mean, it sounds easy. Yeah. It's like you hear a song on the radio, you think, oh, come on, that's easy. (laughs) Right. Where's my microphone? But you do it. It just isn't in real life. And we've all got things that we're good at. So we're not all going to be good at everything. But it just isn't that easy. We just introduced some new line of combustion analyzers. Well, it wasn't a five-minute thing. (laughs) I mean, I like the process. I do think there's this mystery about the process. But the other side of the process is very hard work. It doesn't just happen. And I think that's true of, again, any creative endeavor. Ask a a songwriter or ask an artist or ask an author, how easy was it to create that song or that book or that painting? Oh, yeah, I just walked in the studio and it all just came out. We did it in five minutes flat. I know that sometimes happens, but most of us, we have to slog at it. It's a good slog, but it's a slog. (laughs) You have a very positive friendly attitude about you. I know, I know you in person, so that's and it comes across in our conversation too. Let's turn a little bit towards managing your team. When we met recently personally at our offices, you're talking about how times they are a changing. And what's your role like in the product development process? Or do you have multiple roles? I mean, I've done this. I've worked in our family business for nearly 30 years now. Sometime I did a bit in the UK before we came out here. It's a bit like conducting an orchestra, isn't it? As I said, that's how I 
think is a way to see it. In other words, the point of the conductor isn't that he's necessarily the best violinist or the best guy on the, the drums or whatever it is. I don't think that's the point. The point is that he's trying to draw out what's best in the violinist and what's best in the guy who plays the double bass and make it into a coherent whole. And I think 30 years on, I'm still learning how to do that. But I do think whether it's in the UK or whether it's Korea or whether it's here in America or in Canada, we've just got really capable, skilled people. And most of them know what they are doing and do what they're doing far better than I could. I mean, there's a few things I think I sort of feel particularly well suited to. Most people do things much better than I can. I think what's fortunate is I've always enjoyed the conversation, for example, with the engineers. Obviously, I've enjoyed the process, but just trying to sort of streamline what we do in a way that I hope is helpful for our customers, whether it's customer like your business or your customers. Moving to that higher point of view and looking for commonalities, but perhaps looking out for things coming from your experience. Right. You shared a couple of points with me here, your goals for the products that you make, making the task for professionals as affordable as possible, easy as possible, and safe as possible. That seems to be a lot because that's there's so many things pulling at that concept. How do you measure these things, easy, safe, and affordable? Do you have any scale on which you measure them? If you take in reverse order, a lot of safety is very much defined by codes. So mandate most. Yeah, or you're going to try and get your approval for an electrical product or things like that. And and on, even on the combustion analysis, there's various certifications, particularly for we're making in the UK and there's various certifications that we're going to comply with and a lot of them are relevant over here. So a lot of the safety is driven by context outside of our own and we're just going to work within that constraint. I think obviously we're always trying to work within that box. I mean, easy as possible is obviously a little bit subjective. Our perception of what makes something easy, we like on a combustion analyzer, we use a DMM style selector knob. We think that helps make the product easy. Other people are going to feel a different approach is easier. But at the end of the day, that I mean, it's a hard part of the design process, isn't it? You've got to say, well, are we going to do this or are we going to do that? And you're going to have to make that decision. And I suppose we're drawing on experience and things we've heard from customers and intuitive sense. And hopefully we're making a decision that people will agree with. Yeah, that's an easy way to do it. We appreciate that. It's a pain to have analyzed recertified, which has put a lot of work in trying to make that task as easy as possible. It doesn't just have to be about the actual product. It can be what's behind the product and just trying to make that easy. You talk about the task of professionals. So the Having the calibrated and well-serviced product available is just as important as having the right features. Because if you don't have it to use in a correct fashion, you don't have it. You're not doing your work. I think that's the constant challenge of our business. It's the whole thing. And you're constantly trying to keep multiple balls juggling in the air because it isn't just, you can't just say, well, here's the product. It's everything around the product as well. I mean, that's the challenge, but that's also part of the fun of it, is trying to provide this whole thing. And affordable as possible is, I mean, it's difficult, isn't it? Because in one sense, the market is going to decide that people are going to have a perception 
of what they think is of value. And we're obviously in a competitive game. We're not in a place where we can just assume that that's not an issue. It is. And people in our industry are also working within constraints. And so we're trying to provide something that is, should we say, of an appropriate value for what the product does. Part of that comes through having different levels of products or different selections, features that come in and out. That's right. Yeah. Not everybody needs the full scale product. And so you're trying to recognize that. And then again, I mean, even that's an art because you're trying to make those options, those choices as clear and as straightforward as possible. At least that's an approach that we've taken. We think that's a helpful thing to do. Again, I'll just take a different view, but that's our view. You mentioned something a few minutes ago about certifications external to the U.S. Can you give us some insight into that for people here who don't encounter combustion analyzer certifications? What's a general overview? So my brother, who runs the U.K. part of our business, was very involved in setting standards for using combustion analyzers in the U.K. And I've lived here so long that I don't know all the details of that. And, you know, and it's his thing, and he does that very well. But I do know that the analyzers and the way they're used, it has to be according to a certain standard. And then we also sell the products we make in Europe. Well, there's a TUV or TUV standard, which seems to be a high bar to attain, but that sets a good standard for the design of the products. I was in Korea not so long ago, and they've got their own standard that the analyzers, they have to be tested to meet that standard. And where there are some, if you like, hoops to jump through around that. And you know, different countries have different approaches. And so we learn to work within those. It would seem to me that the international standards you align with enter into the thinking for the product made for the U.S. market. And I think it's really helpful in many ways. I don't think it violates the principle of a free market that you have some standard. It's driving works because we all drive on the same side of the road. We're not free because we just choose to drive on any side of the road. The freedom comes because we all play by the rule. And I think in a sense, the standards can be very helpful to us, if you like, of thinking through well, what's best practice here? What's the best way to do this? So sometimes it might seem a burden, but I think for our industry, the world we're in, I think that actually they can be very, very helpful. So it's just a framework that you have to work within, along with all the other frameworks that you're going to work through as you go through this process. It just goes back to, it's just not so easy, Bill, as you know. You just have to balance all these different things. And I'll say, I don't want to call it funny, but it, I smile when I see like on some social media things, people say, why don't they make a whatever? It's like, if you only knew. <laughs> go right ahead. <laughs> Please try. Yeah. And it's not meant to be standoffish, but it's there's so many things to consider that you will either learn very quickly or fail very quickly. Yeah. And I'm very grateful. I think my parents started the business, I think it was 66 years ago. It's just coming up on 67. Just very, very grateful. My dad, he started with one product. It could have just been a complete failure. The the friend who invented this electron thermometer, he might never have found a customer for it. All those scenarios could have happened. The fact that it didn't is just something I'm very grateful. Yeah, looking backwards, it's just unbelievable. It could have been a different story, but here we are today. I'm very grateful for that. We share a favorite movie. Did I tell you that? <laughs> I do. <laughs> yeah. Can you tell us how that rings in your mind, the movie we're talking about? 
<laughs> the movie is Apollo 13. I really just like it, I suppose, on a number of levels. I think it's a very well-crafted movie. The way it's put together, the soundtrack, the editing, the acting, it's just on its own merits. It's a good movie. But like all the best movies, behind the movie is a really good story. And in this case, it's a true story. And you got to admire the incredible courage of the astronauts who were stuck two, three days travel from home when it all went wrong. And it must just, at one level, have been absolutely terrifying. But I mean, what was also characteristic is just this absolute determination that we're going to bring these guys home. We're not just going to give up. And they had to go through challenge after challenge after challenge and there's that tremendous ingenuity because i think was it the co2 levels were getting too high and they come up with this contraption with socks and things like that it's brilliant and it's just that sort of absolute we're not going to give up attitude and again you've got to have a bit of that if you're just going to persevere through the real challenge of turning an idea into a reality you've got to be willing to stick at it and work at it and try and put up with it not working the first time or the second time or the third time and just keep trying to find a way to make it work. And one of the best scenes in the movie is they're on the way home and they've got to get these coordinates into the computer, I think, and they're all a bit punchy because they're tired. And they want the guys on the ground to check the coordinates. And there's this brilliant scene where they you see all these guys on the ground and they reach for their slide rules to do the connection. I think I was the last generation of school to use slide rules, and I, I never figured them out. But here were these guys using this really, at one level, really basic technology. But behind it was this absolute determination to find a solution to the problem. And of course, they did. And wonderful that they got home safely. And of course, what's also amazing is look at our world now. And how in, when was the Apollo thing? About 1970, something like that. So in 40-odd years, how the technology has changed in ways that almost beyond comprehension. If you said, oh, this is how the world's going to be in 2010, you would just been told that, well, that's great for a science fiction movie, but not real. So the courage of the astronauts, the absolute determination to bring them home and the willingness to do it, with very limited technology, very limited means. And go back to when my father started his business. I mean, he literally had nothing except a product. And he was very fortunate that he got an order and so on and so on. And our nation is just full of people for whom that's the story, isn't it? They had an idea, they started with something, they didn't have anything, but they stuck at it, they persevered at it. And I suspect most of our customers are family businesses, and I suspect most of them, it's either first, second, third generation, but somebody just took that step and said, I think I can get out in the HVAC world on my own. I'm going to get a truck or I'm going to get something. And they persevered at it, even when they really didn't have anything at the beginning. And they, they just kept going. And hopefully they've been able to establish it and make something of it. And I think that story is replicated in our country more times than we can count. Just don't always hear it because it gets a bit buried in the news cycle. But it's a great story. And it's a lot of people's experience, I think. Absolutely. I think it's being shared more now than it used to be, at least in my perspective. Yeah. I like the way there's some TV programs now that really honor 
the work of people who do the kinds of jobs our customers do. They bring out the challenge of the work, but they sort of honor them. And I think that's a great thing just to see that. And we talked about early on the conversation here about just going out and doing what they need to do whenever they need to do it. Yeah. To make sure our listeners understand what UEI represents, can you pick maybe three or four product categories and maybe focus in on one of the leading products in that category? There's two factories, one in South Korea, one in, we've got two factories in the UK, but essentially in the UK. So in the UK, we're making gas analysis products, combustion analyzers, and then related products, things that measure carbon monoxide and things like that. So that's the focus of what we're doing in the UK. We've been doing that since I went back into the business in 1990, and we were doing it then. So however many years that is. Yes, well. <laughs> and then we've been partnered, and the business in Korea is now a part of our family business. We've been working with them, again, since before 1990. So what is that? 30-plus years. And what they do very well is they do electrical test products. So we sell clamp meters, for example. We Probably by the time this comes out, there'll be something new along that line coming out. We've got a business that's really good at making gas analysis products, designing and making them. And we've got a product that's really good at designing and making electrical test products. And then there are other products that are complementary around those products that measure pressure and things like that. So those, I think, are the core group of products that we make. We've got products that measure temperature and stuff like that. Pocket thermometers. Yeah, that sort of thing. Pocket humidity meters. The combustion analyzers that you call the C-series, is that the best designator? So we just launched last year a line we call the C-160 series, which was relaunching, if you like, in time for this season. And there's some changes we're making. We've got some more changes coming down the road. And what we just tried to do is to create a clear, comprehensive line of residential and commercial combustion analyzers and to back them with a very strong customer service solution that we're calling UI Service Plus. And we spent a lot of time, a lot of effort to put those two things together and to try to tell that as a whole story. A bit like we were saying a bit earlier, it's not just about having a product, but having the product wrapped in a really strong customer service solution. And that seems to us important. Appreciating what the customer really needs to have at the end of the day. Your service center, your distribution center, where is that located physically in the U.S.? I live out just outside Portland, Oregon, and we've got a sales office and a marketing office just there. But I can't remember how many years ago we moved our operations to northeast indianapolis so all of our warehousing is there all of our service work is done there all of our shipping is from there we just thought it's just a better place to be logistically in a country like ours we're closer to more of our customers from there than we are from the east coast it is very hard for a brit even after 20 plus years to get used to the size of america the uk fits inside oregon with room to spare and it still takes me time after all these years to just grasp the size of our nation. So obviously, just being in Indianapolis is just a lot closer to our customers. Transit times are much lower, just makes much easier for them. Jumping back over to the electrical test meters, what's some of the key products people may have heard of there, some of the models? So the current clam meter line products are sort of DL3, they all ended up as DL and uh, sort of 300 series. So DL369, 379, 
B, 389B, then there's a 429, the 489. Those are the current line of clamp meters that we design and make ourselves. And we've been selling products like that for about 30 years. And I think they've been well-received in the marketplace. And we've had a good response to that. that We're very grateful for that. In a new category people may not be as familiar with are the smart probes for refrigeration and air conditioning testing. I think one of the things that's most exciting about the technology today is wireless technology because it allows us to separate the gathering of information from where the information's processed and where it's actually used. And we're in the test and measurement business, but we're in a way we're really in the information business. You've got a professional contractor where our tools are essentially providing them information that lets them do their jobs or helps them to do their jobs. There's some wireless things we're doing around combustion analyzers, but We've also launched, I think about two, three years ago, this line of smart refrigeration probes. And it's interesting because the technology allows a routine task to be done in a different way. And I think like any new technology, there's a lot to learn in terms of taking that technology and applying it in ways that are user-friendly and helpful. And the technology isn't going to go away unless the capability won't. So lots and lots of room to keep rethinking. How do we make this, go back to the original thing you mentioned a while back, how do we make it affordable? How do we make it safe? How do we make this easy to use and user-friendly for somebody who's not necessarily comfortable with the technology, but for whom the technology can provide real help? There's some neat innovations in the smart probes, what you call the hub series. There are. We call them the hub series. And again, I think it's clever application of an idea. We first had the idea. I was looking back in my notes. I think it was 2009. We had an idea. We called it Pandora's Box at the time. We just had this idea. And I think we filled it Pandora's Box because we thought, once you're down this road, you're not going to be able to close the box again. I think we're still learning how to do that and how to do it in the most useful, helpful way. I really like the designs and I really like the approach that came up with in this hub series, for sure. I had prompted you to think about some common misconceptions, and we covered some of that. Yeah. But I always like to get that from my guests because they have a certain set of experiences that can help somebody think differently. And that's probably what most of what this podcast is about is help someone think differently. So how can you help us think differently about a misconception people may have about the industry, the trades, product development, anything? Yeah. I mean, the misconception we just referenced a little earlier was just the idea that this is easy. It isn't. And anybody who's doing this work knows that it isn't. And it's just hard work. I think the tragedy, or yeah, I think a tragedy of our industry is, as far as I can tell, is just there's a shortage of people in the HEACR trade. We talked a moment ago. There's a great dignity in the work that people in our industry do. I think they have to work in conditions that I don't ordinarily have to experience, whether it's very cramped attics or dirty basements or just snakes, snakes, high temperatures, (laughs) whatever it is, it's hard work. And it deserves to be honored and respected for what it is. And for a variety of reasons, my understanding is that there's a growing shortage of people. I think that's true in the electrical industry. I think it's probably true in the automotive industry. And I think it's very unfortunate if you are a qualified professional contractor then you have a skill which is transferable. It could be used in almost any part of our nation. 
It can't easily be outsourced and it offers real value, real benefit to people who need air conditioning systems that work and boilers that are safe and all these other things. And it's a real skill. It's a real trade in the old-fashioned sense of the word. And for a variety of reasons, I think nothing wrong with having a, a college degree. I got mine in my late 30s and so on and so on. There's nothing wrong with it. But you sometimes feel like that's the only thing that if you graduate high school, that's the only thing that's of value. But I know people are going through the trade schools, electrical or the HVAC side, and you just think you're learning something that is of great value, that is of great benefit to others. And it, I think it's unfortunate if it's devalued. And I think it's unfortunate if it's seen as being in some ways second best. And I think it's unfortunate that for whatever the reasons behind it, that we're in a situation now where it seems that they're just people are not going into that industry. And I think that's just going to be a challenge for our world and our nation. But I think, yeah, the misconception is just to not see the dignity and the value and the skill that people in these trades bring. And I think it's unfortunate. It's a sad situation, but I think the respect that you show that you've voiced here today and the respect that you show for the process, you wouldn't do the process if you didn't care about the end result. And you care about the end result because you care about the customer. You care about the end user for the product. So you're conveying the right spirit in the best way you can by taking care of these matters the way you have. Hope so. (laughs) Thank you. We had a nice rambling conversation here. It's always fun chatting with you. And just want to see if you had any closing thoughts for the listeners. My life's been full of surprises. I never planned to live in America. And I've had the privilege of knowing you for a long time now, Bill, in a variety of contexts. And I suppose... Never thought I'd do a podcast with you. No, you didn't. So, there was a little arm twisting involved. <laughs> so very appreciate the opportunity. Appreciate how carefully you uh, prepare for these events and how thoughtfully you ask questions to frame a conversation. So thank you very much. Appreciate the opportunity, Bill. Thank you. Thank you, Michael. I want to thank the listeners for tuning in. Let us know what you think. You can Send us some messages through the podcast app or me at bill at truetechtools.com. And please, your web address or a means to contact you, Michael. ueitest.com. And you can contact me at michael at ueitest.com. Very good. I will put both of those links in the show notes. Thank you. Thanks again, Michael. Take care. Thanks again for listening into this episode of the Building HVC Science Podcast. If you want to keep up with things that I find interesting, Follow True Tech Tools on Facebook. See if you can find me on Facebook too. You can also just type in Building HVAC Science in the Facebook search bar. If you're interested in becoming a sponsor of the podcast, email me at bill at truetechtools.com. Sometimes the topics we talk about require technical training or proper interpretation or safe execution. If you're a pro, you can go ahead and do that and you have the right training. If you're not, please consult with and hire a pro. The Building HVAC Science Podcast is a production of True Tech Tools Limited. And thanks for listening in. Take care until next time.